Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Well, welcome, Gary. Well, thank this... you for having me back. I appreciate it. <clears throat> you know, I I, uh, I guess so much has been happening lately. I, it seems like you were here like over a year ago. It was just last October. But yeah. I guess that's almost a year already, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's so funny you're saying that. I Just before I walked in the room, I was chatting with my wife about the fact that um, – <laughs> pandemic has completely skewed both of our, our senses of time um her mom got remarried a year ago and i was telling her i thought it was three months ago that's how <laughs> skewed this has been um so yeah the last year is just a blur but so much has been going on yeah that that uh you know there's there's a lot going on uh in in the whole world of psychedelics i i saw an article today about uh Harvard even is uh, really getting reinvolved. Yeah, yeah, is... that article just came out last week. Um, they are starting to study uh, anew the uh, question of legality and ethics in in this new emerging area of medicine. So, uh, so, so you know, you say that the the the, uh, the last year seems like three months to you. So, uh, what all has happened in the last three months in the world of psychedelic <laughs> law, huh? <laughs> Um, okay, in, in no particular order or hierarchy, um, amongst other things, uh, the world of investment right now is just going bonkers. Most of the activity for investment is taking place on the Canadian stock exchange. Uh, just the Canadian laws are just way more liberal. Um, you'll also, if anybody's into the cannabis scene, you'll, you'll notice most of the cannabis stocks are traded on the Canadian stock exchange. Um, the U.S. stock exchange is starting to warm a little bit. There are a few uh, domestic psychedelic companies that are doing fundraising right now on the U.S. exchange. But, yeah, Canada is by vast margin leading, leading the charge. Um, part of what is also happening in the great wider world of, of this new scientific FDA-approved universe, um, the Caribbean, turns out, is the hot spot in the world for study right now. And the reason for that is most of the countries in the Caribbean – have a little more relaxed uh, regulation and attitude towards the study. And as a result, a lot of companies are trying to set up shop there uh, in order to conduct these studies to try to get FDA approval, etc. Uh, let's see, other things going on. There is a new Psychedelics Bar Association. I, I'm not, really? I'm not really? The, there, there is. I'm not one of the founders. I'm not a board member. I'm friends with them. Uh, but a bunch of folks uh, were working behind the scenes and have started up a psychedelic bar association. And it just is getting started right now. So if we have any fellow lawyers who are on the salon this evening, um, if you just Google, I think it's psychedelicsbar.org or something plainly obvious like that, uh, you'll find it. And they're taking signups right now. 
They've already done, I think, two, possibly three initiation ceremonies. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in the first one. Um, oh, somebody just posted the uh, listing in the chat. Thanks, uh, Ragnar. Um, anyway, yeah, if anybody was curious, just go to the little chat thing. You'll find the link to that website. Uh, and they're still taking sign-ups. So if anybody wants to join the association, they can. You know, when, when uh, I, I haven't practiced law since the 1970s, but back then in Texas, it was hard to even find somebody to defend somebody who was charged with a marijuana charge, you know? So yeah, for sure. uh, this is a long, uh, big steps, you know, that my, my only uh, little, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, uh, revolt is I'm still a member of the Texas Bar Association, uh, inactive member. I haven't kept up my uh, credit, you, you know, my study credits. But uh, my little re uh, revolt is that my picture on the Texas Bar uh, uh, website is a picture I had taken at Burning Man. So <laughs> in my straw hat, I'm about the only one without a coat and tie on that, oh, <laughs> that website. I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, Texas is, um, you know, just one of multiple states where uh, this weirdness extends. Um, I understand that, uh, of all things, Senator Ted Cruz is a little open to the study of psychedelics for veterans. Um, the Department of Defense is a huge supporter of psychedelic studies. You know, we have so many psychically wounded veterans right now who, you know, conventional medicine just doesn't do much for them. So... To that extent, yeah, if you still have Texas connections, hit up uh, Senator Cruz. See if he can't relax some more Texas law for us. <laughs> not that it's not already relaxed in some of the wrong ways. but <laughs> Yeah, fair. Well, a completely deregulated energy grid so that you have blackouts and no power during the heat of summer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the uh, the discussion on, uh, about uh, corporations getting involved in psychedelics, uh, I'm sorry, last Thursday... Uh, uh, Leonard uh, Picard was here, who has actually you know, been yeah. a major uh, uh, subject of the war on, on drugs. And he apologized. He, he couldn't be here tonight. But uh, he has been uh, involved in consulting with some of these companies. And we talked to him Thursday about that because, uh, you know, we've all been kind of concerned about these companies. And yeah. he at least uh, reassured us that at least in a few of them he's worked with, the top people seem uh not necessarily uh, uh, number one or, or equal to number one with profit. They were also in, in uh, worried about the, the psychedelic or psychological and spiritual aspects of it too. So it, it, you know, we've been concerned that it's all been Philip Morris and money and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, uh, I, I don't know what you've heard about that. Uh, yeah, you know. um, I can absolutely comment on that. And you're not wrong. It's an absolute fair criticism, Lorenzo. Um, you've got to consider that right now the, the money that's being attracted towards psychedelics is principally coming from people who want to replace the current medications that are out there for people with mental illness and substitute it with these psychedelics. Their um, altruism, I guess I'll use that word, is a little bit in doubt in some instances, but I'm absolutely banging into people on the scene who are interested in psychedelics for the right reasons and uh, some who even have a spiritual motivation behind it. But we're talking raw naked capitalism at its most brutal right now. And, and that is predominantly what's going on out there. And, and I can explain a little bit of what's behind that. Um, and by the way, I'm going to be um, 
speaking on a panel in November in Las Vegas on this as well. Uh, I just got invited to join the uh, Delic conference taking place in Las Vegas. So this will be a little preview. Um, so to explain what's happening in, in the world of investment right now in psychedelics, which is completely different than the world of, of um, religious entheogenic use. And by the way, there's a lot of litigation going on there. So we'll double back a little bit in the conversation. I'll talk about that too. But the world of psychedelics right now is pursuing patents. They, they, these investments, these uh, securities that are being offered, and these capital raises that are going on is to promote research. And these companies are looking to lock up patents because that's the only thing they can financially exploit. You know, the natural stuff, the mushrooms that just grow up out of the ground, you can't patent that. You can't grab a piece of nature and run to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and say, hey, I found this, it's mine, give me exclusivity. You only get patents for unique invention. So the scientific groups are trying to do things like find a new form of the molecule, find a new way of delivering the molecule, find a new way of suspending the molecule, finding a way to modify the molecule so that it maybe has a slightly different effect or... Um, invent companion molecules that can maybe terminate a trip, which is actually useful, by the way. I'm not, I'm not opposed to this research. I think it's actually a very positive thing because um, it'll make psychedelics more accessible to more people in a greater variety of ways. My worry is it loses its soul along the way, but to make these substances more accessible medically to people who need them just on a medical basis, you need to find ways, for example, to be able to terminate a trip if they're having a really bad one or just to be able to drive home. Because, you know, depending on what you're taking, that could be a six-hour commitment in somebody's office or at their location. And not everybody's going to be able to accommodate that or, or afford it or be able to do it. So that's what's going on right now. They're trying to lock up patents on ways to make what happens in nature unique and also ways to make that uh, slightly better or medically efficacious. And that's, that's what we're seeing right now. Um, the problem, like you'll, you'll notice in Oregon, which just in the last general election passed the psilocybin program law, first ever in the country, by the way, um, there have been some pharmaceutical companies who have been taking pot shots at that because they perceive this as a direct competition. I completely disagree. I think the modern FDA, you know, Western medicine track actually would be supported by the more um, entheogenic track and vice versa. I think they don't dwell in the same trenches, and I think that they could actually help to bolster one another. So one of my other crazy little side projects that I'm getting started is what is going to be affectionately known as the Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act. Um, and the idea came to me because of the, the last general election. If you noticed around the country, there were, I think, seven drug-based initiatives that were on the ballot during the general election, and they all passed. Um, oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> thank you for pulling that up. Uh, yeah, I actually published an article on this. So if anybody's not aware, um, there are two articles that are published on Psychedelics Today that I, I talk about this uh, crazy idea of mine. And uh, the basis for it is that while I'm looking out and seeing that little cities in some states are opening to this idea, there's nothing between them that's identical. So, you know, when Denver passes an ordinance, that's great for Denver, but it doesn't do anything for anybody outside of Denver. Likewise, Oregon psilocybin program, again, fantastic, great for Oregon, doesn't do anything for anybody outside of Oregon. So seeing that this psychedelic awakening is happening across the country, 
and it's gaining momentum, I thought, why don't we try to bake in some uniformity right out of the gate and also craft a body of law that anybody in in a legislature, if they had the will, could grab it and present it in their legislature as a possible model to be adopted. And for the lucky people in the 14 states in the country who have the ability to pursue a public initiative, which is a way of completely sidestepping your legislature to pass a law, you could also grab this and run this in a, in a political campaign to get a public initiative passed using that body of law. So that's going to be uh, coming we're starting work on it hopefully in the next few months. Um, I'm also having a, a better website built for my uh, universe here. I've got a dumb little website up for the book, but it's expanding beyond that. So we're going to be hosting the Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act on that website. And I'm going to be trying to put a lot of data about it very public-facing so that the world can, if it wants to, participate in the effort and also see what we're doing because I'm trying to lend some transparency and legitimacy to that project. I, I put a link to your website and to your book, uh, as well as that uh, article in chat. And so they can get that out. I'll put it on the program notes as well. Oh, thanks. Uh, also, you said something uh, earlier that I hadn't uh, I hadn't heard at all before, is that you said there's a lot of research going on in, in the Caribbean now. And that's something I didn't I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I, I, I really wasn't either until just a few months ago, um, as I've been talking to more people <laughs> about um these different opportunities, I've been seeing lots of people pointing in that direction. Um, in fact, in, in the news, there's uh, a company called Silo. They study psilocybin naturally. Uh, they've got a big thing going on in Jamaica. In fact, I read an article, I think about 10 days ago, they cut a deal with the Bob Marley estate, and they're putting out a line of non-psychoactive mushroom-based nutraceuticals as a way of introducing more, uh, shall we say, medicated products, down the line, but they're also hosting psilocybin retreats there, etc. Yeah, I, I see Mike. Mike has come in, and Mike, you have experience, don't you, with uh, you know the medicine in, in the Caribbean? Uh, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I, I have experience with teaching medical school at Caribbean islands. Uh, I met numerous researchers there. I never met anyone that was doing psychedelic research, but I haven't been back to the islands in five or six years, so. Uh, I'm sure they're picking up on the spirit of the of what's going on. Yeah, you might might put out feelers to any associates you still have down there. I'd I'd be curious to know about it. In fact, that yeah, that definitely caught me by surprise, and I'll be checking things out. Yeah, I, I think it's the Gwyneth Paltrow effect. Candidly, uh, a couple of years ago, she did one of the episodes of her show doing a psilocybin retreat. I think in Jamaica. Don't quote me on that, but I think I'm right. Uh, and apparently that just was like the tipping point. So, well, I, I hadn't, hadn't heard that, but, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting to know. And, and of course, you know, that there's a, a lot of research being done all over the world. I don't think the U.S. is the leader in it anymore. Oh, by no means. By no means. You know, Johns Hopkins is doing great things. And, and as we started off the conversation today, you know, Harvard's actually taking up the philosophical issues, which is great. Um, so, you know, more is coming every day, and I'm very encouraged. Um, other things going on around the country right now. Um, my, my, my friend Catherine Tucker has filed a lawsuit up in Washington State under Washington's right to try laws. And what that's about, uh, the right to try laws allow patients who are terminally ill to experiment with unapproved drugs. 
there's an application process, and essentially the, the thing that they would want to try has to be somewhere on FDA's radar. It can't just be, hey, I found something at a hardware store, let's give it a shot. Um, but if it's on FDA's radar but not yet at full approval, there's an application process you can go through to allow that terminally ill patient special permission to engage, uh, as well as allowing their doctor and pharmacist to administer. And the lawsuit that's taking place right now regards some terminally ill can, uh, cancer patients who are wanting to use psilocybin as a palliative, just to give them some better presence in their final days, because they're diagnosed terminally ill, they're not going to survive this, and there's no cure anybody can offer, but all they're asking is for a chance to try something that might improve their quality for whatever time is left. And crazy, crazy, DEA stepped in and said no. <laughs> So they've sued DEA. That's a lawsuit pending right now in the federal courts seeking to enjoin DEA from stepping in the middle. And the essential core argument in that case, amongst many, is that DEA has absolutely no regulatory authority whatsoever on medical decisions. And by refusing to grant the right to try access, that's exactly what DEA is doing, is rendering a medical decision on behalf of a terminally ill patient and their physician. That's that's really an interesting uh, approach to it, uh, because, you know, uh, until uh, you just are talking about that, I was thinking that, you know, the religious approach is really what everybody's been using. I know they've, they've it's been unsuccessful a lot of times and successful. And and you actually represent one of the, the largest, the oldest peyote church, right? Yeah. Yep. Peyote Way Church of God here in Wilcox, Arizona. And, and so the religious exemption isn't now the only one. There's the, the, the medical approach as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is, this is virgin territory, and I think it's going to do spectacularly well. Here's why. Not only is this Washington case filed and pending, I think nine, maybe 14, I can't remember the number, but at least nine different states' attorneys general filed an amici brief in support of the petitioner against the DEA, arguing that this was 100% a state's rights issue that DEA had no authority to involve itself in. So when you've got multiple states' attorneys general taking that position, and by the way, you want to know how crazy that gets? Arizona's attorney general is one of the amici. <laughs> My own home state here, a very conservative place. We, uh, you know, the legislature is very anti-drug everything. Uh, and even then, our attorney general stepped in and said, yeah, DEA has no voice here. So that's you've been You've been rubbing off on the legal community there, Gary. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd love to think so. Um, I'm, I'm still dedicated at some point to making a run at trying to bring uh, legality to psilocybin here in Arizona. I don't know if 2022 is going to be the year, but uh, I'm still definitely pushing towards it. Now, how, how do you feel about that, like in, in uh, the legality of it in in uh Oregon, I know that there, we've, we've had some debates here about, uh, you know, anybody could open a clinic or maybe they couldn't. And, and how, how, how do you feel about uh, when you say the legality, what are you meaning specifically about uh, how, how would you go about legalizing? Yeah, uh, and that's an excellent question because you're right. There are so many diverse points of view on this. And, and they range from where we are now, which is total prohibition. And at the opposite end of that spectrum is no regulation at all, just a completely unregulated free for all. I don't advocate the unregulated free-for-all. Um, I feel a little conflicted because my heart, I would love for there to be no regulation. I would love for people to just do whatever they want, trusting that they'll be responsible and not do stupid things in stupid ways. But 
The reality is uh, that's just not how most people work. And if you just advocate for a free-for-all, you are simply replacing one problem with a new set of problems. So this, this is right at the sweet spot of why I'm advocating the Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act, because I think that to get all of the people on the no side of the room, at least over to the maybe side of the room, and that's what you need if you're going to lever politics here, you've got to give them some assurance, some um, safety measures, protocols, regulations, etc. And, and we've seen over at least the last decade across most of the United States with cannabis, that's worked out pretty okay. I don't think any state's cannabis program is perfect, but, you know, crime didn't explode, drug abuse didn't explode, murders didn't spike, uh, none of that happened. And in point of fact, most people are doing much better than before prohibition started to lift. So I think inside of a regulated model where maybe people have to get some education before they can partake, I'd be comfortable with that. And, and I think it's also consistent with history. You know, you go all the way back to, like, I don't know, the Eleusinian Mysteries, you know, that was a world that didn't have these regulations, but still, if you wanted to engage in that activity, you had to go to a certain place, behave a certain way, and be led by others who were senior to you in the form of priestesses. Um, so if you adapt that sort of ethos to it, I think there's plenty of room to get all the no people to say, okay, maybe a little bit, maybe we'll try this. Um, so that, that's where I think it, it has to go next. And then from there, look, if, if the sky doesn't fall and Chicken Little proves to be wrong, you can relax the rules further. And, and like you just said, in, in the deregulation of cannabis, uh, it's, it's, you know, irregular across the country, uh, state by state. And no, no one of them is one that I think is perfect or even, you know, that close to it. But over, overall, there's so many different variables and yet, overall, there's not been a huge problem. And I think that speaks well for it, that we're, uh, we have, a, at least in this country, uh, with the state regulations, a, a way to test various and, and sundry things. And actually, you know, there may be different regulations for different cultures in different parts of the country, too. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's a big country. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got so many competing interests who want to have a voice and want to be protected. I'll give you a great example. California right now has a decrim bill rolling around inside its legislature aimed at just making most of these substances state legal. Amongst things they could have included but made a conscious choice not to was to permit home cultivation of peyote, which is kind of near and dear to my heart because of my affiliation with the church here. And um, I know in speaking with the, with the church seniors, they feel very strongly that California should permit peyote cultivation. But because certain legislature members who were drafting that bill had some connections with the Native American church and, and had some conversations with them, the decision was made to exclude peyote from the items that could be home cultivated on premise that they were trying to be respectful to the Native American church and belief in peyote's spiritual nature, which the Peyote Way Church of God also supports, but has a bigger agenda, and that is literally the protection and preservation of peyote. So what we believe is, yes, home cultivation for peyote should be in that bill and should be permitted because this cactus is deeply threatened right now. Uh, between human incursion and climate change, its territory is diminishing, as are its numbers. So if we can get people home cultivating it, 
not only will that reduce poaching, it'll also increase the, the viability of the genetics. Well, that's, that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense when you, you say it that way. And, and it makes me feel good about my, my little peyote plants that I've been nurturing for the last 15 years. Here. Yeah. And, and for those of you, by the way, who don't have experience with peyote, it takes 30 years for that plant to mature. If you're growing from seed, I mean, you, you got to plan when you're in high school because uh, you're not going to be visiting that plant for decades. It takes an egregiously long time, and that's part of its fragility. Uh, also, it's a spineless cactus. Its only defense mechanism happens to be the mescaline inside of it. So it really needs human help desperately. Are, are there uh, other questions that are arising here? I don't want to, to dominate everything here. I know that <coughs> we've had a lot of discussions about some of these issues. So uh, anybody care to join in here? Yeah, I'm checking the chat room too. see what people are saying. Oh, nothing yet. Okay. Um, other things I can tell you about. Um, let, let's talk a bit about the spiritual side. So there are a few lawsuits pending right now um, by ayahuasca churches that are taking on the DEA uh, pretty aggressively. Uh, for those of you who might know about the ayahuasca churches generally, the last few decades there have been a, a couple of Supreme Court cases on ayahuasca where the Supreme Court has affirmed the entheogenic use of ayahuasca for certain organizations. And the ayahuasca churches are uh, making a huge inroad in the U.S. right now, I think fueled in part by the fact that the Supreme Court recognized the religiosity behind the practice. And um, I just did a, a little review a couple of weeks ago on the DEA denial letter to the SoulQuest Church based out of Florida. And the, the short story for those of you who aren't in the know, and by the way, I'll say up front, I don't know all the details. I, I just have pieces of that file myself. But apparently in 2017, the SoulQuest parent organization had applied to DEA for recognition of religious exemption. And four years later, yep, four years later, DEA finally responded and said no. Uh, after taking a litany of data from SoulQuest, multiple interviews of multiple members, four years later just said, no, nah, we don't think you're an actual religion and you're not getting the exemption. So SoulQuest right now is in the midst of litigation over that. Um, and I'll explain a little bit of the detail behind what I do know. So the, the heart of DEA's denial of SoulQuest's request for exemption is premised on DEA's belief that SoulQuest isn't an actual religion. And the reason SoulQuest had even reached out to DEA to request exemption is because they were having trouble, like most every other ayahuasca church does, mm -hmm. during the importation of ayahuasca from outside of the country. You know, DEA and U.S. Customs will... As part of their normal duties, this is not abnormal behavior for either of those agencies, involve itself in what's coming across the border. And on the question of religious organizations, um, DEA had put out a rather extensive application form saying, hey, if, if you want us, DEA, to allow your importation and access, etc., you've got to fill out all this paperwork and also justify and explain what the religious basis is, etc. Now, here's the problem with that, though. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act places the burden on the government whenever the government wants to regulate religious freedom, and that's the turning point right now that's taking place in these cases. These ayahuasca churches are turning around and saying, hey, wait a minute. We have a First Amendment religious freedom that should be 
in effect, prime or prime over whatever the regulatory environment is. So when we're coming and saying, hey, we want to import or interact with ayahuasca, we shouldn't have to be proving the validity of our religion to a police organization. That, that's just weird and creepy. That would be like Catholics having to justify Eucharist to a police officer. It's no different. And, you know, we would never abide that practice. So why should these religions have to have a police agency determine and rule on its religiosity? Um, so that's, I think, the real pivot point for those cases right now. It sounds like they, they might have a, a, a foot in the door a little bit there. That sounds like a, a, a crack, maybe. Yeah, on the legal side, yes. Um, on the factual side, I really don't know. You know, DEA in their denial letter really took SoulQuest to task on the facts of their their religious practice, pretty much flat out saying they didn't believe SoulQuest was a religious organization and they didn't believe it was a religion. And again, I, I don't have the case file, so I can't yeah. speak to those details. But assuming SoulQuest could get in front of a judge and and overcome that, yeah, I think they've got the better legal argument, to be quite candid. I don't know if they went on the facts, but on the law, I think they could. How, how far along are those cases right now? Um, still fairly in their infancy. Still fairly young. And they're in the state of Washington? Uh, no, the SoulQuest case, uh, I believe, comes out of Florida, their, uh, their home base. The right to try cases out of Washington State. Okay. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how those come along, but it'll, it'll be a while, I assume. Oh, for sure. But I'm actually really encouraged. Um, you know, during the Trump administration, he got opportunity to put three justices on the Supreme Court, all super conservative. Uh, I don't personally politically swing that way, so I cringed a little bit as it was happening. But in a really weird way, it's like the best Supreme Court ever for psychedelic religions because they, they these justices do really skew towards taking the First Amendment deadly seriously. And I think they absolutely would warm to the notion that the DEA shouldn't be literally ruling on what is or isn't religion. So I think by the time these cases work their way through the trial courts, work their way through the appellate levels at the whatever circuit they're in, and make a run for certiorari at the Supreme Court, I think they've got a fair shot at getting it. And, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, a nice take on that, a positive look, because I've been quite kind of negative about the court. You know, I think there's six of them are, are practicing Catholics right now. And so yeah. you know, I've, I've been a little upset about that, but uh, I, I had never thought about it as far as the freedom of religion. They, they may want to protect that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what really encouraged me. Um, a couple of things. Number one, we had a case come out uh, almost a year ago now called Tonzin versus Tanvir, and Supreme Court case, and it established that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allows for money damages against government agents. So if you're a religion that is being impacted by DEA, and let's say, for example, they're not letting you have your ayahuasca or they're arresting people when they shouldn't, you may legitimately be able to sue those officers in their personal capacity for money damages Whoa. under RIFRA. That was mind-blowing. And RIFRA has been around for years. Nobody realized you can pursue damages. So that's a game-changer. Um, the other <laughs> thing, too, that is very encouraging about this court, weirdly enough, again, another benefit of pandemic, 
were all the religion cases that came out over the last year because of all the church closings. You know, multiple governors around the country were entering orders to shut all public accommodation to try to stem the spread of COVID. And this included shutting down churches. And a bunch of these religious organizations sued. And a few of these cases have worked their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court's been deciding in favor of the religious freedom. So, yeah, it's wacky, but this might be the best Supreme Court ever for psychedelics. You know, I, I have to admit, you know, whenever I read news about the court uh, ruling on some uh, religious freedom thing, I, you know, I see, just see the headlines and I kind of cringe. Uh, but now I'm kind of looking forward to it. I've never, I, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. I guess, uh, huh? Yeah, let, let me blow your mind a little further. You know who Ken Starr is, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Ken Starr put out a book about four or five months ago doing this really, I have to say, fantastic survey of First Amendment, religion, law, and the Supreme Court. Um, And he was coming through uh, the different bar organizations promoting the book. So he did a continuing education seminar here in Arizona, which I participated in and got to ask him a question at the end about psychedelic religions. And damn it all, if he didn't end up answering my question positively, Uh, he was very encouraging. And I will say the book is actually well-written. If you don't know much at all about the First Amendment and Supreme Court cases, this is the book for you. It encapsulates and summarizes all the major cases. Now, I will say, you know, Ken Starr does use it as a platform to also advocate his political views, which is fine. It's his book. I have no quarrel with that. But if you can overlook that and just read the book for its content, it's really a good read. I can't say enough good about it. Well, that's that's a, a nice uh, recommendation, and you know, of course, uh, I I'm an old reader of the IF Stone Weekly, and and he he never read anything that agreed with him. He always read the opposition, so uh, that's probably a good recommendation on two levels that way. <laughs> yeah, well, if you consider like the the um, the history of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, the backstory of that comes out of um, the the Smith v. Oregon case, which was a peyote case. And this was the case in which Justice Scalia, back when he was alive, had ripped away the standard of review the Supreme Court had used for decades. And within two years, the public was so freaked out by that, Congress drafted and passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the number of disparate and different religious organizations that all came out and joined together in support of that was unprecedented. Groups that in no circumstance ever would have come together all came together for this. And I think if we get a good Supreme Court challenge on some of these issues, it'll happen again. Well, that's, that's very encouraging. Very encouraging. Uh, You know, to kind of shift the discussion just a little bit, uh, since there's no immediate questions here. uh, If, if I was, you know, a young law student right now, uh, and I was living in California and I had legally smoked cannabis and I thought, hey, this is a pretty good thing. And uh, I, I'm looking at ways to get into law and I want to I want to get involved in, in uh, working uh, uh, to bring an end to the war on drugs and get involved in all this. What direction? How do young lawyers get involved in this? Because obviously, you know, they have not much sway in a, in a firm when they come out of law school. Uh Sure. Um, boy, that, that is a seminar unto itself. <laughs> um, first off, to, to, the, to the law students and young lawyers out there, um, know that there's no one path. There are so many different paths you can take. 
doing a solo shop, working inside a different firm and building a department for them, um, finding different organizations that maybe want in-house counsel for assistance. Even these um, burgeoning psychedelics pharmaceutical companies are, are, you know, raising enough capital that they actually do want to hire in-house lawyers. Because frankly, if you're doing a lot of legal work, it's way cheaper to have one on the payroll than to hire an outside lawyer. So, so in, 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 in uh, thinking about hiring an outside lawyer, uh, you know, we all live in various uh, parts of the country here uh, and, and on Thursday all over the, the world. But uh, here in the U.S., when, when somebody has a friend that calls them and says, hey, I just got arrested for this Saturday, other thing had to do with either psychedelics or MDMA or cannabis, uh, how do I find a lawyer? Uh, and if they don't happen to live in your hometown, how, how, how do you tell people to, to find a lawyer that, that has some idea of what, what uh, either psychedelic law or cannabis law is all about? Yeah, for, for sure. So you're right. Finding a good criminal defense lawyer who's versed in these issues is a little difficult, um, particularly if you're wanting to do, for example, a defense based on a religious argument uh, or you've got some other just not normal run-of-the-mill argument. It, it is hard because there's no, well, I shouldn't say no. There are very few lawyers out there who are openly advertising that they provide these services. So your fallback is most likely to go find yourself a good cannabis defense lawyer. For example, um, Normal is a, is a huge organization with a tremendous legal panel, and they they will help to pair you with a lawyer who does this kind of defense work. Now, in fairness to that, you're still going to want to interview that person to make sure they are the right lawyer for you. And you're going to want to ask important questions like, do you have specific experience defending against this substance or these particular kind of facts? Well, that's, that's excellent advice. It, and, you know, all of a sudden it just dawned on me, Gary, that <laughs> here, here I'm interviewing an author and I haven't even brought up your book yet. Oh, that, that's <laughs> and, okay. I've and been and let, me, let, me, let me just preface this. It, this is like talking to Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first dictionary. <laughs> this is the first, and as far as I know, still only in, in English, at least, uh, encyclopedia of psychedelic law and and globally it's uh, plus look at that it's a law book look at the cover yeah. in that can you oh, can you imagine that in your law library isn't that amazing <laughs> uh, i if, if i was still practicing law i'd just have to buy one just to have it in my library on on uh, on I, display i so. appreciate that and and in fairness to the comment i mean the cover was absolutely deliberate i i wanted to have something just visually grabbing that also encapsulated the spirit so I think I nailed who, who, it. Who did the cover for you? Uh, a local artist by the name of Eric Cox. Um, he is just tremendous. He does a lot of uh, murals around the cities here. Um, he's done a number of magazine covers. Uh, the way this particular cover came about, pure accident, I was texting with a buddy of mine saying, hey, I'm on the home stretch on this book. I need a cover. Do you have any recommendation for some art? He sent me that picture <laughs> and said, do you want something like this? And I said, no. I want that. So within like 12 hours, I'm on the phone with Eric negotiating the rights to the, to the picture. That, that, that is, first of all, it's a beautiful picture. And, no, and absolutely. For, for a lawyer, somebody that's a lawyer, you know, it's a double beauty because, you know, I could have that picture in my law office, you know, on display because it's a book. I actually own the original painting. So I, it's, it's I hanging on a wall on here that. at the house. <laughs> 
But t- tell us a little bit about the book, because, you know, it's not one that's that readable from end to end. It's, um, it's more no. of a reference, but it is a readable end to end if you want to get some history of this. Yeah, book. it's it's a lot of different things. So the the basic story behind the book was I was on vacation for my 50th birthday and we had taken a trip to Europe and I'm, I'm laying in bed, jet lagged as hell because we had jumped, I think, like seven different time zones and I couldn't sleep. And so the only thing available to me because I'm sitting there awake was my phone and luckily we had internet. So I'm just doing some dumb little research on on psychedelics, thinking to myself, you know, I want to really expand my practice into this. Let me go find some books to better educate myself. And after a couple of hours, I couldn't find the damn book because nobody wrote it. (laughs) So that is literally the genesis of this book. Nobody wrote it, so I had to. And so the content of it, it's, it's not a deep dive on any particular subject. Rather, it's a survey of all the different subjects one would want to know when entering into anything dealing with psychedelic law. And uh, amongst chapters, I include uh, basics on things like the international treaties that affect psychedelics, uh, the basic federal laws like the Controlled Substances Act. Um, I've got chapters that would predict and project out if these were illicit businesses, what would the challenges be? And what I'm doing is borrowing my last decade of experience in cannabis law. So for example, one of the things that continues to vex cannabis, actually two of the things that continue to vex cannabis, you can't file bankruptcy if you're a cannabis business. So whatever debts you incur, it's the legal equivalent of herpes. You're going to have them for life uh, because there's no escaping it. And, And then the other thing is IRS regulation 280E, which says that these Businesses that sell Schedule One substances are not permitted the ordinary tax write-offs of other businesses, which makes running a dispensary, for example, hellaciously expensive because you're paying an effective three times tax rate. So you're paying three times as much tax as any other business because you're not allowed to write off the, the expenses. And the reality is, as we see these psychedelics businesses come online, they're going to bang into exactly all those same problems. So I've got chapters in the book on that so that people can start preparing for it. Um, Other chapters I cover. So if you want to do, for example, have a licit psychedelic experience, but you maybe don't live in a state that offers that to you, I offer some information on how to go about getting into a study. So there are many happening around the country right now, and if you're a suitable subject, you could sign up, and that would give you legal access to whatever study material is being studied. Um, psilocybin right now is, is, I think, at phase three door, as is MDMA. Uh, MAPS has been making huge inroads uh, with MDMA. They are at phase three's door. So this means thousands upon thousands of patients need to be studied. And so there's opportunity for you there. Uh, additionally, I also have chapters in the book on public initiatives. So if you're politically inclined and maybe you're in a state like mine that's never going to uh, wake up to it on its own, there's information here on how to get a public initiative going and, and what that looks like. And also, I wrote the book to be absolutely a practitioner's manual, but I really took a lot of pain to write it at a level that non-lawyers could absolutely grab this book, read it cover to cover. You might not get everything, but it will absolutely elevate your understanding. Um, and then other things in the book as well. Uh, there are a bunch of appendices. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalux.com. 
Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.